0: Welcome to the Musculoskeletal Medicine podcast, delivered by the Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine, designed for the multidisciplinary community of clinicians working in musculoskeletal clinics throughout the UK. In this series, I'll be interviewing a range of people from a wide variety of specialities and interest groups to bring together real-world advice and top tips to help us in our day-to-day practice. Each episode is designed to comfortably fit into the average time it takes to commute to work, which is apparently around 57 minutes and longer if you live in London, sorry about that, and will be packed with knowledge directly from people at the top of their field. So, whether you're a physiotherapist, a GP, hospital doctor, First contact practitioner or another clinician working with people living with musculoskeletal health concerns, you've come to the right place. My name is Giles Azan. I'm a GP working in the southeast of England, where I also work as a GP with an extended role in musculoskeletal medicine. And I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you today Dr. Anushka Sonny. Dr. Sonny is a consultant rheumatologist at the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre in Oxford. She's also a senior clinical research fellow at the University of Oxford. She has a clinical and research interest in musculoskeletal pain, having completed her DPhil entitled Pain Characterization in Osteoarthritis, and has been awarded an Oxford UCB Bryce Fellowship to advance and translate her work on pain mechanisms to inflammatory arthritis and fibromyalgia. She's currently working in the Pain Analgesia Anesthesia Imaging Neuroscience Group, led by Professor Irene Tracy at the Wellcome Centre for Integrative Neuroimaging. So what we're going to do today is dive into all things fibromyalgia and have the benefit of Dr. Sonny's uh, experience from a research and clinical perspective to help us translate some of that knowledge into practice. So welcome, Anushka.
1: Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, So it's it's such a subject close to my heart, working in a community pain clinic. And I think certainly many people working in primary care will identify that patients with fibromyalgia or more broadly the kind of chronic primary pain are really challenging consultations so it's really helpful for us to focus on this today and think about ways in which we can improve our practice. Now tell me uh, Dr Sonny tell me more about yourself how did you end up working in this field?
1: Okay so um, the person who I would attribute to to my developing this interest in musculoskeletal pain is uh, Professor Paul Dieppe. Um, I was attending a course at the Royal College of Physicians, and towards the end of the day, he had been asked to give a session on osteoarthritis in the older population. Um, And as um, you and your listeners will probably be aware, Professor Dieppe is, you know, the godfather of rheumatology. He's written the Bible textbook, Klippel and Dieppe, and so it was quite a surprise when he stood up and introduced himself as a grumpy old man and an ex rheumatologist. And I thought, goodness me, what's, what, what has happened? That's so terrible that he doesn't even want to associate with the specialty anymore. And he went on to explain that in his opinion, with all our um, new treatments for inflammatory arthritis and, and the expansion in that field, we'd forgotten what was important and common. And that was basically pain and common musculoskeletal conditions such as osteoarthritis and indeed fibromyalgia. And that that was really the moment that made me sit up and think, "Hang on a minute, we do we we need both. You know, we obviously need to be thinking about all our immune-mediated mechanisms and target um, treatments to target those, but but also the actual pain, which is the thing that our patients come to us with. So that was what st- spurred my interest. And then I was fortunate enough. Um, to speak to Irene Tracy, who is at the University of Oxford, and she's a wonderful woman, has contributed so much to the science of understanding pain and its mechanisms. Um, And when I was able to join her group in order to do my PhD, that was just the, you know, the best kickstart uh, that you could ever really ask for. And it's just sort of gone from there, really, and exploded.
0: It's such a fascinating area, isn't it? I think the more, like you say, that that really uh, resonates with, I think probably most clinicians listening to this is that the more we work in MSK, the more uh, fascinating and relevant it is to learn about pain science. So it sounds like a, a brilliant balance that you have, um, being able to follow that that research interest, um, and I guess you know n- nothing is is perhaps more relevant than than conditions like fibromyalgia. So. I perhaps want, if I can, to ask you, um, in light of the new, nice guidelines on assessing and managing uh, chronic pain, in particular, this this newer terminology of chronic primary pain. And I'm aware, historically, I've I've kind of been influenced by the ULA guidelines, the American College, College of Rheumatology guidelines. I, I want I wanted to see if I could get you to pin down for me how you go about in the in the first place making a diagnosis of fibromyalgia what, what what's your approach
1: okay um absolutely I, you're quite right i think there's probably quite a bit of confusing messaging out there and uh, so it is actually a very reasonable question to want uh, you know a, a straightforward answer to um i think in terms of making the diagnosis there's a few things that are worth thinking about um the first thing i'd say is that there? It doesn't have to be a so-called specialist making the diagnosis. I think any clinician, any diagnostician, it can you know has the expertise and the, and the tools to be able to make that diagnosis. It can feel scary, and certainly for people who aren't seeing patients presenting with these symptoms on a regular basis, I completely understand that it can feel like slightly uncharted territory, and there's lots of concern about missing other diagnoses and so on. But I think the first message from me would be that anybody is quite capable of making that diagnosis. And actually, it's really important, because we know that patients will often have lived with their symptoms for years and years before it's recognised. And unfortunately, that probably does have an impact on their ability to respond to treatments, and, and of course, their quality of life. So If everybody's on the lookout, I think that would be a much um, more positive way of going about it. You you also need to think about the sort of environment that you're in with the patient. And I think this is something that because it's so complicated, it can't be done in a rush. Um, So it may be something that emerges over time. So it may be over a series of consultations or contacts with the patient that you explore the huge variety of symptoms that they are likely to be presenting with. And the other thing that we really learned in our department during the height of the pandemic was that it isn't something that you can really diagnose remotely. It is, um, in my opinion, something that you need to be with the person, you know, face to face, in person with them to be able to do a full assessment that might sound slightly contradictory because of course most of it is is a symptom based uh, diagnosis but i think the examination part is important and helps you as a clinician to make sure that you're not missing other um, potential causes for the pain and i think it is really important for the patient to feel that they've had a thorough assessment as well um, and is that, is
0: that can i jump in there is that so that's the principle of needing to do a, a, a sort of a thorough physical examination then
1: so I think yeah I think it's twofold. One is um, to look for any clues that there may be other drivers um, for the symptoms that might need then a different or additional treatment um, plan in place, and the other is often to help identify areas to work on. So you can look for say areas of deconditioning, for example, um, and and that can help um, or you know assessing movements that have become difficult and and that can help them with your targeted treatment plan so i would say those are the the sort of two main reasons to to include examination in your assessment
0: and and i, I just pick up on a point you you said there which i think really cuts to the heart of the challenge in a non rheumatologist making the diagnosis is that i think we're sitting with the fear that we're missing something else and on the you know on the one hand, we're very aware of, of the, the prevalence of, of fibromyalgia and, and as per the new NICE guidelines that we should be making a positive diagnosis earlier. And then on the other hand, we're being told, you know, we're, we're potentially missing quite a lot of conditions like spondyloarthropathy, you know, Shergren's disease that's lurking that perhaps, you know, I was reading a paper saying that it's the same prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, maybe we're just not picking up on these things. So. It, it, it's the perfect recipe for uncertainty. And I, I'm I'm going to pin you down, I guess, and say, so when, when you're doing, I mean, you, you've got your subjective assessment and your objective assessment, as you said, with that twofold uh, uh, reason for doing the physical exam, what are the sort of headline things that you look for as symptoms that might make you think of another diagnosis?
1: And um, so things that might make Me, uh, question you know whether all the symptoms are attributable to a diagnosis of fibromyalgia would be, um, for example, features that suggest an inflammatory type process. So, you mentioned spondyloarthropathy, and absolutely, that's the sort of thing that can get missed. Um, and it's worth mentioning that this this happens to all of us, you know. Um, (laughs) I've been caught out before as well, and it can be very tricky to unpick different conditions. And as I'm sure you're all aware, fibromyalgia can coexist with other rheumatic conditions. And indeed, the prevalence is much higher um, in patients with other rheumatic conditions than in the general population. So it It is something that, you know, not only people in say working in the community are prone to. It happens to all of us. And again, this is where we've got to recognise that things can evolve and that it is always worth revisiting the diagnosis whenever possible. But in terms of looking out for other things, it would be things that you wouldn't want to miss are inflammatory processes. So they they may be associated with objective evidence of swelling, for example, uh, around the joints, significant early morning stiffness. And a positive response to being active, and that one's usually quite useful because often patients with fibromyalgia will report either immediate or delayed worsening of symptoms on days that they've been more active, so I find that quite a useful discriminator
0: that's really helpful um yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense um those those tips and tricks and i I, I guess then that that leads on to the the question of 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 your feeling about the the scoring systems that we use so the American College of Rheumatology talk about the widespread pain index symptom severity score is that the sort of thing that we should be using in practice I think I think from my perspective that's very helpful because that gives you a framework to assess somebody you know you know clear scores that you can use in an area of uncertainty
1: Absolutely. So um, these diagnostic slash classification criteria have evolved. Several iterations have emerged in the last uh, decade or so. Um, But I think most people in the field would agree that the 2016 revision um, to the ACR criteria are probably the most useful, as you mentioned. It includes the widespread pain index. So through that, you're capturing the fact that the pain is indeed affecting multiple regions of the body, which is obviously a fundamental cardinal symptom of fibromyalgia. But then it also has the symptom severity index, which is a, acknowledging that there are this, these other symptoms that will coexist. So including sleep disturbance, fatigue, um, cognitive disturbance, and then other features such as pelvic pain and so on. Um, so I think they, they are probably the most useful criteria to use. But remember that they are a guide, use them as a guide and and don't override your own clinical sense and judgment. Um, You know, if you have a feeling that actually, I really think there's something else that's going on here, listen to that gut instinct as well. Um, The other advantage of the the criteria is that they actually produce a continuous measure. And so in the research uh, sphere, people are talking about fibromyalgia-ness. So uh, a nod to the fact that it isn't black and white. So it's rather than, you know, you do have fibromyalgia or you don't have fibromyalgia, it can actually be more useful to think about it on a scale in terms of severity of symptoms. And actually from a research perspective, that has been uh, correlated to other uh, markers, uh, including levels of brain activation and also uh, whether patients who are undergoing knee replacement surgery, for example, require huge amounts of opioid analgesia afterwards um, to gain comfort and relief from symptoms post-operatively. So probably that is a, a more useful way of thinking about it rather than this dichotomy.
0: And, and that's that's that sort of leads us towards starting to think about underlying mechanisms because one of the questions I was going to put to you was, if we're faced with people who show the features and I'm going to use the term central sensitization, and you might shoot me down in flames for that, but um, you know, the the features of allodynia, hyperalgesia, expansion of the receptive field, you know, features like that where, but, and yet they, they have regional pain. i.e., it's not widespread throughout, you know, multiple regions of their body, but it, it displays as you, You know, I've not heard of that phrase, the fibromyalgia-ness, which I think is really useful. So that sort of leads us to think about moving away from just a pure diagnostic label to thinking about this in terms of underlying mechanisms, perhaps. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And there's um, several examples in the literature of where using this score has enabled us to understand the mechanisms involved and how uh, to what degree they, they are active. Um, And we mentioned before how fibromyalgia coexists with other conditions. And there have been studies looking at, uh, say, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, examining the degree of fibromyalgia nurse and being able to correlate that to the central sensitization mechanisms that you also mentioned in the brain. Um, So I think this really is going to be the way forward in terms of trying to better understand those mechanisms um, and how they're switched on and off and to what degree.
0: OK, well, that, that's a brilliant segue to then ask you to <laughs> dispense some wisdom on mechanisms then, because it's, it, it feels a little bit, and maybe that's just me on Twitter, it feels a little bit like these are still areas of controversy. When you start using terms like nociplastic pain and central sensitization, it feels a little bit like a minefield. But perhaps you could, you could tell me where your research and, and your team's research has taken you in terms of understanding mechanisms.
1: And um, so the bad news, I think, Charles, is that it is a bit of a minefield still um, in that I, I think it's fair to say that we don't fully understand the mechanisms completely and certainly not on an individual level as yet. But on the flip side, the good news is that there is a lot of money going into this area of research. Finally, it is it is, you know, it's become a more sexy area. It's interesting. Um, people are acknowledging that it's really important to understand. So I think with time, um we will see an explosion of data and understanding and and certainly that is beginning to happen already. And um, there's a lot of terminology out there. Um, and the to their credit that you know the um, people like the International Association for the Study of Pain. Um, have campaigned to um, get the ICD classification out there and to get pain acknowledged as a condition in its own right. And these have been really important steps. Um, but I think along the way, we perhaps have created a little bit of confusion um, with the central sensitization, the nociplastic pain, and so on. So just to sort of clarify the differences there, for example, so nociplastic pain, is pain that um, arises due to changes in the way that the nervous system is functioning. And that could be a change that occurs out in the peripheral nervous system within the spinal cord or the central nervous system. Um, Whereas central sensitization is very much focusing on those central nervous system changes. The idea behind nociceptive pain. This was a third category of pain that was introduced in addition to neuropathic pain, which is where you have clear damage or a disease process affecting the nerves, um, or uh, nociceptive pain, which is is more physiological pain that is there to sort of protect us. Um, so it was introduced to try and encapsulate conditions such as fibromyalgia, where there isn't evidence of clear nerve damage or involvement, but there's clearly an abnormality in how the nerves are functioning. So in that regard it's a very useful term, I think, um, and it's quite a helpful way of thinking about it when you're then trying to convey that message to your patient. But what it doesn't do is really tell you where the mechanism is exactly. That is still fairly open and that is an area of active research.
0: And do you, do you think, because it's a bit like the research with osteoarthritis, where we're starting to understand there are a range of different phenotypes of osteoarthritis. And, and my limited understanding is that that's likely to be the case with fibromyalgia, is that we see that as an umbrella diagnosis with, with beneath that several you know, phenotypes. Is that, is that likely to be the direction of travel?
1: Absolutely. You're quite right. The field of osteoarthritis is way ahead of the game here. Um, in understanding that there are these different phenotypes and that by identifying which group a patient belongs to, you might be able to then optimize their response to treatment. And you're absolutely right. If we go back to those um, diagnostic criteria that we were discussing earlier, they are going to capture lots of people with lots of different types of symptoms that are likely due to a number of different mechanisms. So once we've done that, the next step, in my opinion, is to really hone in on those subgroups. We're not there yet, but hopefully over time we'll be able to understand, OK, within this umbrella category, you probably more in, say, the autonomic subgroup. And so let's try and address the autonomic uh, system and how we can modulate that. You know, And I think there will be these different groups that people belong to that can help guide treatment even more
0: and what do you th- so so and forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot but what do you think those subgroups are can can you go as far as delineating some suggested I appreciate these may these are not fully uh, uh um established but you mentioned an autonomic subgroup there what, what are the others that you would think of
1: yeah so as you say this is complete speculation on my part but I think looking at the literature The systems that are likely involved to varying degrees would include the autonomic nervous system. We could think about peripheral nervous system drivers, and there's evidence that uh, some people with fibromyalgia have reduced small nerve fibre density. Now, this could be cause or consequence. That's another area that um, needs further validation, but it may be that for some people there are more peripheral drivers. And that would be really important to understand if that were the case, because that would then guide how you target in terms of treatment. Then you can think about the more central nervous system pain mechanisms. Another system to be thinking about would be the sort of reward and learning mechanisms um, that are really important and underpin how we respond to pain. And it may be that for some people tapping into that could be really productive and helpful to them. The other other area would be um, the hormonal influences and stress responses, for example. So there's data suggesting that whilst cortisol levels are probably raised on a more chronic basis in patients with fibromyalgia, they have then a blunted response to acute stressful triggers, and that may be Driving this maladaptive response as well, and there may be ways to target that. And then, of course, we've got to think about um, mental health and well-being, and how anxiety and depression and the mechanisms involved there interplay as well.
0: And that's is this is where we're then creeping into. So I, I, you know, what you described there is the interplay of the kind of the HPA axis, the immune system, and the nervous system. You know influencing each other significantly there and I guess the, the crossover with mental health and I know the, the questioning of the, the serotonin model of, of depression and so on so we're all obviously clearly still learning but this is where then my again my limited understanding is that the the adverse childhood events model and that's the influence on those those neuro hormonal axes is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there there is some evidence to support that, um, that actually those early um, life experiences can really shape how the HPA axis functions uh, into adulthood as well. So, um, And and there may be also a genetic component um, to that as well that shapes that process. So these are all really relevant. And,
0: And I suppose from a practical perspective, this is another thing which I think is important perhaps to filter out to clinicians and colleagues is that one of the many reasons I love pain science is that it's actually giving us solid evidence of these changes in a condition which has been really heavily stigmatized hasn't it the kind of pain is all in the brain sort of thing where where that very often gets interpreted as being essentially you're making it up and and i i I, you know hands up would recognize that a lot of colleagues in general practice essentially see a condition like fibromyalgia as a psychiatric condition solely. And actually, you know, what we're talking about here is these range of mechanisms, the, the, the evidence base that's building is giving us a, 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 a reliable medical model to, to explain these phenomena.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think it's really important that we share that message with our colleagues, but also our patients. Um, And I think that's one of the the key parts of being able to help them along their journey as well, sharing with them the bits of science um, that we do have. And and things have moved on a long way and will continue to do so. And it's important that we... um, we we make sure patients are aware that we don't just think it's all in their head, as you say, and that there are these mechanisms. And whilst we don't fully understand how they all piece together in an individual person, we do have concrete evidence that all of these these, um, these parts are affected. Um, and, and we can see that, you know, we can see that when we look at brain imaging studies. Um, you can't get more objective than that, you know, when you're studying pain. And um, so, so these are very tangible differences, as you say.
0: And so, so I wonder. I'm always fascinated at uh, cons- the consultation itself, the language that we use in the consultation. And never is it more challenged or complex than when you're explaining, I think, fibromyalgia, right? And and I wonder. When you're in a clinic and you're you're seeing a patient who you, you feel meets the criteria, how do you, what's the language you use to explain this to a patient?
1: So I think it's really important to try and match um, your approach to explaining the condition to where the patient is on their journey. Um, and I think that probably is the key. So there isn't a one size fits all. Um, some patients will actually, if you let them speak freely enough, will actually basically tell you, you know, I've been looking into this and I've read about this thing called fibro, fibro something. And, and I think it might be, do you think it is? And then, of course, that's they've thrown you that bone, and that's very easy. Then you can pick up and say, okay, absolutely, I think the symptoms do fit. Have you looked into, you know, what it is and what drives it and so on? And then you can take the discussion on. Um, From there. Um, Many times, of course, it it won't be as straightforward as that. And you might be introducing it uh, de novo. And I think one of the key things is to emphasize that uh, it's not a diagnosis of exclusion. And there are actually positive discriminators. You know, the fact that they have pain all over their body, that they are absolutely exhausted despite however many hours of sleep they're apparently getting that they um, are going into a room and forgetting what they were about to say, you know, all these features are really characteristic of the condition. And it's important to validate that, I think, you know, and say something like, you know, the fact that you have this all over body pain, and all the other symptoms that you've described, means that this sounds very much like a condition called fibromyalgia rather than I think what we used to do, which was, oh, good news. Um, there's no evidence of inflammation. So it's not this, it's not lupus, it's not rheumatoid, but actually creating a positive uh, message around the presence of that collection of symptoms, if that makes sense. Um, and then from there, I think it's really important to try and share with the patient, um, our understanding of the the mechanisms behind pain, and emphasizing the fact that pain is actually really good. It is actually something that is there to protect us normally. um, And, you know, that's how we stay safe and protect our bodies. Um, But when it's malfunctioning, then it becomes a problem. And to remind them that Just because something hurts doesn't mean that it's causing damage. Because this is now malfunctioning, we've got to this point where the pain doesn't mean that there is underlying damage. And that we we need to try and retrain the the pain signaling pathways um, to understand that. And that's really important.
0: That's great. Um, I mean, it's 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 interesting, as I say, and I think as you're very clear in pointing out there, there is no single best answer to that question, um, and and it has to be tailored to the individual. But those key messages about, you know, dysfunctional nervous system, uh, pain not equaling damage, and the I suppose that 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 takes us towards the way we describe responding to that and how we manage those symptoms and you touched on that in that this is about retraining the nervous system um and is that a a a key component i I wonder how you expand on that is that then when you're moving into thinking about targets for treatment? um tell me about that how you how you how you work out the next steps
1: so Sometimes during the consultation so far, the patient may have actually volunteered, oh, I've noticed that when I'm stressed, symptoms get really bad or, you know, it's disturbing my sleep. So then I might try and pick up on some of those clues that have presented earlier when I'm talking about the management, because those are all key components of the management plan. You're quite right in saying that I think the overall um, aim is to try and retrain the nervous systems to allow um somebody to continue with all the tasks that they should be doing and you know want to be doing in their day-to-day lives and helping them to understand that even if doing that causes pain, it's not causing damage. So I think um we sometimes I use the um house alarm analogy where you can talk about how sometimes the alarm will sound when there isn't an intruder or a problem. And that that is basically similar to what's happening with the the pain signaling mechanisms in the body um, and how sometimes we need to sort of work through that. And I think the other key message is to try and help people to focus on the, the goal, the positive goal that they're aiming for, despite the pain rather than trying to focus on getting rid of the pain because actually that's really hard. Um, If that is your primary goal, that that's very difficult because we don't have the tools that help us do that very efficiently at all. But actually through working on, say, a goal of being able to play with my grandchildren um, or, you know, get back to uh, walking my dog regularly, through that, that can actually sometimes result in a reduction in pain. But I think it's a much more productive way of trying to approach the problem and a much more positive one because we're focusing on something that we want to achieve rather than something that we're trying to get rid of.
0: It's it's that gain-framing approach, isn't it? And I, I think what you describe very nicely there is that shifting to this is personalized care, isn't it? You're identifying functional goals. Um, which are meaningful for that individual. You know what is important to you, and you know a question I'll, I'll I'll often ask is what is it that you're not doing now that you'd like to be doing more of, um, and and shifting away from that focus on purely the symptom of pain and uh, to that wider range of impacts. You know the impact of the pain itself becomes you know potentially a greater issue. The, the, the one of the benefits of that approach, of course, is that when you're starting to talk about the non-pain symptoms and, and functional goals, is that you're drawing away from the temptation, particularly as a prescribing clinician, as a GP or other non-medical prescribers, is that it, it's very easy in primary care to end up just talking about pain and painkillers and the medication. and you're on a hiding to nothing. So, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but my experience is that none of the drugs work very well. But, but tell me if, if you have an approach when you're talking about prescribing in, in fibromyalgia.
1: I completely agree with you, Charles. I think the medications that we have at the moment are not very effective at all. Many patients who have tried a variety of different uh, drugs often seem to get most of the side effects and none of the benefit. And I think it's really important that if somebody has been started on a medication to help with their pain, that there is a continuous reassessment of that risk benefit ratio to see, well, actually, am I just getting all the side effects or is this helping me in any way at all? So I, I often Spend most of my time talking about how they might want to consider reducing medication that they've already been put on or avoiding medication. Now, there is a role for medication in some scenarios, though, um, I would say. And I think it, but it would have to be in conjunction with other uh, non pharmacological uh, interventions. So For example, if somebody does suffer with really bad sleep and they haven't yet tried, say, low dose amitriptyline, I think it's reasonable to talk about that. But I usually leave it till the end of the consultation. And I usually um, suggest it as something that is not going to be a long term solution and not going to be a definitive solution, but might help them because it might then help them to engage with being more active during the day. Um, for example, if they're feeling a little more refreshed. So I'll usually tag it on to, you know, as more of a stepping stone. This this might take the edge off so that you can do or you can engage with some other non-pharmacological technique.
0: So so use as an adjunct, and, and you mentioned there its role um, in in sleep. I mean, the, the sleep is a massive part, as you know, as a target for for treatment and i wonder where the research has taken you in, in in is is that something that you've understood as a as a separate kind of mechanism is it cause or effect i mean there's my understanding is that sleep and pain there's this bi-directional relationship so you know i, I forget the the name of the study but where they took a bunch of people and sleep deprived them and those without pain ended up having the kind of musculoskeletal pain so it's it's a really important area isn't it
1: Oh, absolutely. And you're quite right. It's bidirectional. But um, I think most researchers in the field would agree that the forward link between sleep deprivation first and then causing pain, as you described in that study, um, is probably stronger. So in epidemiological studies, having poor quality sleep in the absence of pain is one of the risk factors for the future development of widespread pain so it's super important it's also a nice way in i think to talk about uh other ways of trying to help manage pain most patients will straight away recognize that it's it comes alongside the pain and is linked and are open to thinking about ways to try and improve that and there are um I guess a few different ways that you can think about addressing that, ranging from sleep hygiene, medication, for example, um, the tricyclics. And then cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia as well is is another key component. So I think, and in terms of you know sleep as a mechanism, I think it's super important. Uh, we did some work, not in the context of fibromyalgia, but in osteoarthritis, where actually... Sleep quality prior to knee replacement surgery was actually a really strong predictor of of outcome after surgery, and it, and as you mentioned, the the sort of nice thing about that is that it's it's another treatment target opportunity that perhaps isn't being looked at in that particular context.
0: So so sleep's clearly a target. That's fascinating to to hear your insights on on that. Um, we've we've identified. You mentioned earlier on about areas of deconditioning and and that sort of deconditioning is huge huge in terms of loss of function muscle strength um flexibility stress as a driver you know I I love these conversations when you're having them with patients because as you're working through actually what you're creating is almost like a personalized recipe book isn't it you know these are all the components that we've identified as being important as a general rule none of them necessarily lead to conversations around uh medication so it it becomes a lot more uh of a positive consultation for the clinician as well because i think that's one of the things that i would champion is that we need to make these better consultations for us as clinicians not just i mean obviously most importantly for the patient but we need to be more comfortable and view them as a positive thing that we could do a positive consultation.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the problems with that is that we have a slight learned helplessness here, don't we? We we go in as clinicians, and we're very used to being able to manage something, we have solutions, we, we can help. And this is one area that um, we we don't feel like that sometimes, and I think that is because you know we there isn't adequate training. We have a very medical model of pain that is taught to us when we are trained, and I think just as you say, through broadening it to more the biopsychosocial approach, and um, acknowledging that that's really important um, both for the mechanisms driving the pain, but to the patient too, you know, and and for them that's what they want. They want somebody to listen and to acknowledge that the symptoms are there and very debilitating and by asking about you know how this is affecting you from your work and your social perspective um, and and, and other elements of you as a person I think is really powerful and also as you quite rightly point out leads nicely then to helping uh, target specific things that are very prominently Sort of disturbed for that person.
0: Brilliant. So yeah, that's that's a wonderful summary. thank you and And I guess as we we're, we're, we're running out of time, I, I, I want to bring you to, to to the last couple of questions and and the first is I guess where you see things moving with the research that's happening, with the the advances in pain science what do you feel is the direction of travel for managing chronic primary pain fibromyalgia as conditions? Where do you think we're going in the next 10-20 years?
1: So my hope is that as I mentioned earlier that we will be able to be a bit more specific about these subgroups of patients and that that will then lend itself to more tailored treatments as well. There is an explosion in terms of use of artificial intelligence, data-driven analyses, um, and using large um, quantities of data, so big data, in order to try and answer some of these questions. So we're currently looking at data from UK Biobank, which has 500,000 participants, and of those 100,000 um, participants, will have had brain scanning done uh, by the by the end of their initial. Assessments and so using that coupled with data-driven approaches, where we don't have to know or have a specific hypothesis about what we think the mechanisms might be, I think would be a really powerful addition to the the wonderful research that has already been done. And hopefully, through that, we will then be able to identify different mechanisms and these specific subgroups. So that would be my hope for the, the future
0: and and do you think in part some of that um is being driven by the research into long covid and and this is a little bit of a uh, retrospective question in that do you do you think that the research into long covid is looking at similar mechanisms crossover between long covid you know those a viral trigger to persistent fatigue you know ill health do you see that as essentially researching into the same problem or do you think there are there, there's a a, a difference?
1: I think there's likely to be differences, because obviously, with COVID, there is a very clear initial trigger. Whereas for people with fibromyalgia, there there isn't often that and it's not so sort of time locked, if you like. But if you look at the actual symptoms um, that people are presenting with, there's plenty of overlap there. And if nothing else, I think, you know, it's been it's been a really important area that's been focused on and, and put fibromyalgia on the map a little bit in, in terms of recognising that these symptoms are really important and that something needs to be done.
0: Fantastic. So if I was to ask you then the the kind of three key take-homes for, for anybody listening to this podcast, the the things you would most like clinicians to take away from this, what what would you say are the top three things?
1: Okay, so the first would be um, the point that I think any clinician can recognize the symptoms um, and features of fibromyalgia. So don't think that you need to be super specialized to be able to do that. Go for it. (laughs) Use the guidelines and and your clinical intuition and, and, and have a go. The next would be the point that we discussed about not relying too much on medication think broadly remember all the elements of the biopsychosocial model and and pick one or two key goals at a time to work on and help support the patient through that process and for the third message um i think i'd go back to the idea of fibromyalgia that we were discussing earlier so recognizing that it isn't a black or white situation it's a spectrum and actually remember that features of fibromyalgia can coexist with other conditions, particularly other rheumatic conditions, and be alert to that and and aim to recognise that early because you could then intervene and help in a really positive way that might be different to if you were, say, attributing symptoms to a flare of their rheumatoid arthritis, for example.
0: Lovely. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's that's just been a a really helpful review of a lot of different features. I mean, we covered a huge amount in whatever that was, forty minutes or so, um, and, and really, really great to to get the insights from somebody who's really at the coal face of research and pain science. So, thank you so much. A question that I, a final question that I've been putting to uh, everybody that we've been interviewing is. If you could choose the person uh, to next have on on this podcast for us to interview, who would you most like to hear interviewed?
1: Oh, it's a tricky one, Giles. (laughs) But if you force me to choose one, um, I would probably go for Professor Daniel Claw, who is also a rheumatologist, but has spent um, the majority of his research life investigating the mechanisms in fibromyalgia. He's been instrumental in uh, developing the guidelines for how to diagnose it, but also been involved in loads of neuroimaging studies, looking at the underlying mechanisms. Um, So I think you would learn loads if you spoke to him about his journey with fibromyalgia too.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you so much. So all that remains is for me to thank you, Dr. Anushka Soni. Thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your insights. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, it's been my pleasure.